Check. <laughs> Test. All right. Cool. Oh, man. Such a rich time together already. Uh, before we launch into the, the sermon for the day, I would love to just pray. Um, pray a little bit. If you'd just join me in prayer, feeling like I want God's uh, additional guidance for our time together. So let's just pray real quick. Father, I thank you, God, that what we're doing here is about your glory and your honor. God, this is not a show. This is not a presentation from up front. God, this is us doing um, family life together. This is us talking about the most important topic in the world, which is how we can uh, live in our created nature and our created purpose. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come upon our time in such a powerful way as you already have been. Would you join us in this sermon time? And I pray that your will would be done. I pray that you would um, flow through this time and that you'd use it powerfully. And God, I just, uh, we just remind ourselves, God, that without your active life in these environments, God, we're just meeting. This is just a club, God. But with your active life, God, we get to participate in heaven. We get to participate with the living God who's moving and active. And so we ask your, your word to go forth, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right, y'all, we're going to jump into the book of Matthew per usual. Um, if you're new to us, we've been going through the book of Matthew for, I think, a few, like over two years now. Um, yeah, it's been a really cool kind of deep dive, and we've gone every line and just dug into the scriptures, and um, all 200 messages of Matthew are probably online somewhere, so if you want to catch up, have fun with that. We're going to start in Matthew 27, and we're going to fi finish chapter 27 today, which the crazy part is, that means that next week, or whenever I preach next, we're in the last chapter of Matthew, which for those who've been with us for a while, it's like, whoa, there is an end to Matthew. I didn't know if this day would come. What's that? You now love Matthew. That's, that's the goal. Love Jesus and Matthew. All right, so we're going to start in, in verse 57 here. So where we're picking up is we just last week went through the very intense and gruesome story of Jesus giving up his life on the cross. We went and we talked about how he was flogged, how he was hang, hung on a cross, how he went through this horrible, horrible experience. And if there was any alternative to Jesus being on that cross that God had, then he was cruel to have Jesus walk this route because it was so horrific. But the truth is, is that this was the only way for God to maintain his justice, which he refuses to sacrifice, but also to show mercy and love to a world that had rebelled against him. And so God did the unthinkable, which was allow his son to be killed by his very own creation so that they could look to him for salvation and look to him for forgiveness while the punishment for their sins had been fulfilled on somebody else. We're coming right out of that in verse 57, and this is immediately after that. So right after Jesus was, was killed, there was a, a few activities that were supernatural, and then we pick up at verse 57 in the evening. It says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, 
and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, uh, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that it has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. All right, so today we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to risk uh, for the Lord. For us as followers of Jesus to walk in his footsteps, that the thing that Jesus modeled in his life of going to the cross and being persecuted in probably the heaviest way that we can imagine, that that is the life that he's invited us into. That it's not a one-time thing that God did in only God's power and only he can walk this life. What Jesus tells us uh, in all of his teaching is that his disciples will walk in the same way that he walked. And one of the things that was un, unleashed, or un, it's the wrong word, was enabled through the power of his death and resurrection was the fact that the Holy Spirit of the living God, God's very own power and spirit and love can enter into the people that have received Jesus into their life and empower him to live as he lived. And so when we, we see Jesus saying crazy things like take up your cross daily, uh, when we see him saying other things that I'll, I'll share in a minute, uh, like in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, we sometimes, sometimes stop and go, blessed are those who are persecuted for your namesake. Uh, blessing and persecution feel antithetical to one another. And the answer to that is yes, when you're not in view and when you haven't experienced the grace of God on your life. When you've experienced the grace of God, when you've experienced life with the Holy Spirit, sometimes that feel... Sometimes things that feel antithetical to one another oftentimes just become normal. And you go, oh yeah, that's exactly how God works, right? In order to gain my life, I have to give up my life. In order to be truly rich, I need to become poor. He has all of these very paradoxical things about his kingdom, partially so that we cannot rely upon our own human wisdom to understand his ways, but that we need to follow him by trust and obedience. And so in this passage, it begs the questions, where do we see this kind of bravery or where do we see this act that I'm going to be talking about or why of all things that I could talk about with this passage are we bringing that up? The answer is, it may not be obvious from the very beginning, but Joseph and the women here, the two Marys, are incredibly brave in this passage, especially Joseph. It's kind of a strange thing because we've never heard anything about Joseph of Arimathea it says in, in this book that what do we know about this guy? All we know that is he was a rich man. It's like, and that he was from Arimathea. But like, that's, that's all the Bible in this, in this book tells us about Joseph, which is kind of strange. Um, one of the reasons why in this passage it mentions 
that Joseph was a rich man is because in Isaiah 53, there's a prophecy that was made a thousand plus years before Jesus ever walked that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And so this is, again, Matthew, the author's nod of another of the 300 prophecies that were fulfilled, proving that Jesus was the true Messiah. This is a pretty big one. I don't know like how you conjure up being buried in a rich man's tomb. That's just like a pretty strange, you know, like that one's not obvious. Um, I don't know anybody that was buried in a rich man's tomb. Just does anybody else? Maybe, I don't know. But, uh, but that's why that is included. In, in the other books, it mentions that he was a part of the ruling council of the time. So he was one of the Jewish leaders, is one of the things that we read in the book of Mark. And so what we start to see as we pull together these different, these different pieces of, of Joseph's life, this was not a freebie for him. This was not just a rich guy who's like, oh yeah, I've got 10 tombs, you know, like Jesus, go ahead and, you know, take one of them, I'll tie, I'll tie the tomb to you. This was not what was going on with Joseph. Joseph, this was extremely bold of him. The reason why I say that is because if you, if you remember what had just happened, Jesus had died a convicted felon's death. His crime was that he was uh, a revolutionary who claimed to be the king of the Jews and threatened the Roman Empire in their authority. That's why he was crucified. And so for, for Joseph to come right behind him to the person that just ordered his execution and to stand before the person that could execute him if he wanted to or throw him in jail or have him flogged, it seems like for the, the Roman ruling authorities at the time, flogging was just like, you know, an everyday occurrence. Um, Joseph went to Pilate as, a, as, as one of the members of the ruling council, of the council that had just conspired to have Jesus killed, stood before him and asked for his body and therefore identified as one of his disciples. This is extremely bold. I think that if we put ourselves into Joseph's uh, shoes here, or sandals, forgive me, um, <laughs> he was probably pretty terrified going to ask for the body of Jesus. And if you think about it, there'd be all the reason to not go and do this too. Uh, the guy just died. So I think every other disciple is questioning whether Jesus is actually who he said he claimed to be. His other disciples have scattered all over the place. The only disciples that we see left are the women and Joseph. It's like the most, if, if you were going to write like the, the, a, a story and, and it was like the most unusual people to be left behind doing the courageous stuff. Peter was off hiding somewhere. The other disciples, we don't know where they went. But we have the women who were incredibly disrespected in this society, especially for bold acts like this. They're shown as like the pillar of strength and faith. And then we have this unknown guy named the Joseph of Arimathea who's shown up like once in the Bible and, uh, and he does this amazing thing. But we need to remember, for, for Joseph, this was, not, this was not a freebie. This was him risking his life, associating himself with a leader and a convicted felon who just supposedly revolt against Rome. His social status as a wealthy and powerful man, as a leader in the religious community, all of this was in jeopardy. 
and he's doing this for a guy who just died. How easy would it have been to just say, like, well, he's dead, you know, like, let's just move on. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And actually, let me back up. The other reason why this is so unusual is because Jesus says, harder is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than to go through an eye, than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He's basically saying it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then who do you have at the hero of the book that he quoted that very thing? You have a rich man who's using his wealth and using his authority to get before Pilate in this unusual time and leverage everything that he had at his disposal to honor Jesus in this way. And what I want to talk about, and so fitting after Michael's talk, is what does it look like for us to truly lay down our lives, to give our lives, our money, our social status, our reputation, our jobs, our relationships, all of that stuff, and lay it at the feet of Jesus for his honor and his honor alone. Before I even looked into the passage today, I was laying on my bed, and I was just talking to the Lord and just interacting with him, and, and I felt like it was impressed upon my heart again just how much I want everything in my life to be about his glory. For the areas where I don't necessarily want that, where it's kind of scary, I want to want it in those areas, right? And I think, you know, Michael's thing about surrender is so powerful, right? When you've encountered Jesus, you're like, oh, got it you're encouraging me to surrender things that aren't good for me so that you can give me things that are amazing for me. Or sometimes you're encouraging me to surrender things that are objectively good, but it's standing in the way of great. And once you start to see that that's who God is, then you start to crave these moments of surrender. Like for Suki and I, every area of our life that is flourishing in God is an area that the Lord has had us surrender and usually surrender pretty big. But with the, with the model of Joseph in this passage, it, it kind of sat on top of my prayers from this morning to say like, we just sometimes, it's just so good for us to just stop and to remember that all this life is truly about is serving his honor. Like, it's so busy and there's so much going on all the time. And we do things like, like I, I go to work because I feel like I'm called to the workplace. And I know people go into their classrooms because they're called to their classrooms. And people go into nonprofit jobs to fight for social justice because they feel called to that. But I don't know about you, but sometimes like when you follow down the line of the thing that God called you to, after a while you get into the groove of doing it and, you're, and you almost have to remind yourself again why you're there you know, and stop and go like, oh yeah, am I, am I still going to work today because of Jesus's glory? Or have I lost track of that's the reason why I go to work today? Am I still loving the people in my life? Yes, for them, but ultimately for Jesus's glory. And I think sometimes you know, in this church especially, we talk a lot about what it looks like for us as Christians to be in a posture where we're constantly aware of God's grace, receiving his love, understanding how he feels about us, 
so that we can go out into the world and live for his glory and his honor. But if we go too far with that, I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice. We allow extremely valuable days in our life to go by where we're not making the honor of Jesus the thing that we're living for. Sometimes, like the parts of our hearts that are still broken and unyielded, we're waiting for those things to be healed and mended in order for us to then go out boldly with no inhibitions and to do this thing. And I think I'd just say to us and remind us again, it is so important for us to have the vision for our life that all of this stuff is for his glory and that needs to start today. Who else is challenged that Michael is, is testifying like that after being three months in the Lord or something like that? I mean, the dude just got saved and I'm like, Lord, I need to get saved again because like, I need that guy's boldness and his courage and his passion. I mean, that is amazing. And we need to have that similar kind of refreshing moment just every once in a while as we do life together and say, man, like, look at Joseph. Go Joseph, right? Like, he spent his money in a good way. He, like, laid down his life in a good way. He, he, his social status was subordinate to honoring Jesus in this moment. When all the other disciples had fleed, he was the one still standing up to both Pilate and to the religious community of saying, like, no, this was wrong. This was the Son of God, and I'm going to go show it with my actions and with my money. Like, that is amazing. That is amazing. And I think it's just good for us, like, to get ourselves back into that place again. Like, none of this, apart from the glory that is brought to our Creator, none of this stuff really matters. And so it begs the question, like, We've talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. The thing that God prescribes as his love language is loving each other, right? So, like, there's this thing called the love languages. There's usually five. Married couples oftentimes go through them. It's like acts of service. You like acts of service more every day that you're a parent with young kids. (laughs) Even if you're not an acts of service person, you become one really fast. Physical touch is one. Words of affirmation, gifts. Um, time, right? Like these are the five love languages generally. Jesus' love language is none of those five. Well, I guess acts of service kind of, but Jesus' love language, I I guess we just decided which is the ultimate love language, right? (laughs) Acts of service, there it is. We just definitively decided that that's what it is. But Jesus' love language is laying down our lives for one another. It's loving one another. It's spending our lives on one another. He's got this interesting, we're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount in a minute, but he's got this interesting statement that he makes in the Sermon on the Mount that I was reflecting on this morning. He says, seek my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. And he's directly addressing the pull in life to spend too much of our mental energy and heart energy on financial matters. Right? Right? We're just so caught up in everything that's going on. It feels like finances just take such a huge role in life. He talks more about finances in the Bible than he does about prayer. And he does that because it's just so crazy how tempted we are to find our security in finances. And so he totally flips that thing on his head. And he says, basically, don't give any attention to financial matters. 
Seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll, and I'll, I'll treat you like one of these sparrows in the field that, that has a better setup than Solomon in all his splendor. Right? Like Solomon was the richest king of all times. He had everything at the snap of a finger. And he says, like, the lilies of the field, they're clothed better than him in, in, in his finest robes, right? But he flips this thing on his head and he says, don't give any time to that whatsoever. Just commit your life to seek my kingdom and write my righteousness. Make yourself fully about me in every way. And all these other things, will, they'll be added to you. And so the crazy thing about God and the, the life that he calls us to is that there's no way that you follow the path of Jesus and make it as one of his disciples without a tremendous amount of trust. He has this setup where he's like, hey, you don't want to trust me with financial things, but I'm telling you that if you just ignore them and you leave them to me and you focus on the things that I care about, which is establishing my kingdom of light to push out all darkness on this earth. The kingdom that Jesus talks about can be broken down to the king's dominion. Kingdom. What is a kingdom? It's the place where the king has rule and authority. It's where his will is done. And when you start to get the, to know the heart of Jesus and really get to, heart to know, know the heart of Jesus, you go, oh yeah, like I always want your will even when it's not my will. Just because I know that my will is fallible, I know that my will is misguided sometimes, but man, like your will is the will. And so that when, when he says, seek my kingdom and my righteousness, that's the type of stuff that he's talking about. Infatuate yourself, consume yourself, flood your life with the things that I care about, and let me take care of all the rest of that stuff. And in the same Sermon on the Mount, he addresses another one, not just finances, but he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, plenty of people are per persecuted and not persecuted for righteousness. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Hey, walk as I've walked, and as you do that, if you're persecuted, Man, in that day, he goes on and says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, Jesus has all of these different areas of life. In fact, every area of life is the thing that he wants to have under his rule. So, you know, he talks to us about finances, and part of that is he says, hey, tithe your money, because what this does is when you give the first 10% of your income, he's pretty rich. I don't think he needs our 10%. The reason why he's doing this is because he doesn't want your heart to go astray, forgetting that he's the provider of all things. And so the first thing that comes in, the first 10%, you go, yes, I'm taking it. I'm giving it to the Lord. And it doesn't mean that the other 90% is yours. It's all his. He just has a prescription for the first 10% objectively, and then the other 90% is more subjective in a way. It's like, okay, pray about it and find out what he wants to give, and like, oh, I want to give here and do missions here, and like that thing. So it's all his. Like I was just talking to somebody recently who knew somebody who had really like a problem with tithing, and I just thought it was kind of interesting because it's, that to me is not a problem with tithing. That's a problem with lordship. Right? Like, that's not, that's not a problem like, 
I have a, I have a problem with the, the concept, you know, that's a problem with like, the whole thing is his, right? Like, not just that, you know, like in this case, blessed are the people who are persecuted. This is him doing that flipped upside down thing with another major asset that I think um, has the potential of stealing heart space and mindset space of us, which is the opinions and the, the good thinking and the compliments of others. So I'll, I'll confess, like, I've been kind of persecuted for righteousness' sake. I've been persecuted for a bunch of other things, like bullies in middle school that didn't like my red hair or like something like that. I know, it actually was sad. I'll, I'll give a moment, it actually was sad, because like, okay, let's go, let's move on. Um, I remember this one time. I still remember it. Yeah, kid named Nick, I still remember. He came up and he was walking along, like I was just strolling along and he comes up, do you remember dead legs? Did anyone else do, do dead legs? You basically knee somebody right in the like split in the muscle right there and it hurts especially bad. So anyways, this guy came, this bully from an upper class came and gave me a dead leg and then called me an insult related to my red hair and then like went by and you know, like whatever. It's like, you know, but yes. <laughs> that was not for righteousness sake. That was just for playground sake or whatever. But I, I remember I did, uh, when I, so my testimony goes, uh, it's interesting how um, the Lord oftentimes goes after identity stuff as one of the earliest things that he'll talk to us about when we become Christians. I was walking through a keg party and he addressed identity stuff with me, which was you're trying to have a strong identity by doing what everybody else does, which is getting drunk and like squelch your insecurities and that, and then like solidify your identity and hooking up with uh, the opposite sex. And so it was like a part of my identity that I was looking for security around, and he addresses it straight out of the way, even before I was following him. And the Lord refuses to have any identity be paramount to the one that he gives us. Because when he has a strong opinion on something, nobody else's opinion matters. He doesn't have a strong opinion on everything. But where he does have a strong opinion, we don't get one. He's God, right? And our paramount identity is not one where we have an opinion. Our paramount identity is when he comes and he says, you are worth dying for. That is our paramount identity. Moses asks him, can you tell them who it is that's sending me? And he basically says, tell him that I am is sending you. He's saying like, the, all, the, the, the infinite never created, all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, one who can't be labeled with anything that would try to confine him, the I am, I'm the self-existent one, that's the one who's sending you. Go in that identity. Go tell Pharaoh that, right? And Jesus sends us into the world in a very same way. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember my son who I gave up? I... I allowed to be crucified so that you could be with me forever? Yeah, that's who you are. Now carry that into the world. Carry that kind of crazy love as your identity and your security in the world. Somebody comes along and says, oh, I don't like your ragged hair. And it's like, dude, Jesus, Jesus died for me. <laughs> right? 
Like, am I going to go and identify myself by my career? It's like, Jesus died for me. What else would try to identify us that would be raised above that kind of stamp from the Lord himself? That is our paramount identity, and it can't be shaken by anything that could ever happen to us in life. And it serves as our stability and our strength. And that's how he sends us forth into the world. But he, he refuses to have any other identity rise above that. As subordinate identities, we can have things. Pastor, father, friend, all these other things. But all of them are secondary and, and lower than the paramount. And so he addresses that for me in a keg party. I then go through this process where I'm trying to figure out what, what, what it looks like to walk with God and having a really hard time and I go to this conference and I have this incredible encounter with Jesus where everything that I wanted for my Christian life was instantly real on the inside. See, the Christian life as it's supposed to be done is an internal reality that then floods out of your body and shows up externally. Religion, objectively done bad, is an external constraint with no internal reality. And that's why people, including me, hate religion. I want the real deal. I want the Holy Spirit living on the inside of me, filling me with joy and love and passion and living from that place passionately. And I went through this moment where in a moment I had this encounter with God and experienced God so vividly. And I came out of it and I was just walking down the street like, oh wow, I like love this person and want their best. And I don't know why, you know, like it's just weird. And I had endless patience when I was I'm, de I'm debating whether I tell you. All right, I'll tell you, because we're, we're all family. So I used to have a thing where I'd work out like six times a week, and I'd count my calories in a way that was like not healthy at all. And so I was trying to eat like 1,500 calories a day and work out like a madman so I could be all shredded up, because that was part of my identity, right? And I was just irritable all the time. Like, I was constantly irritable because I was starving. <laughs> I was, like, permanently fasting, but not for Jesus. It's like the worst version of fasting. That's just called starving yourself. That's not called fasting. So anyway, all of a sudden, all of a sudden I have endless patience for the first time in a long time. Like, oh my gosh, I have patience galore right? The fruits of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, all of this stuff, self-control, is filling me. And I'm like, I could do this. Like, I can live for Jesus. So what do I do at this conference? I call up my old partying buddy, and I go, dude, I found it. I'm done partying. I'm sending you a Bible. Jesus is the real deal. <laughs> Hang up with him. Go back home. I start going out to all the old parties and the bar scenes that I used to be a part of with all my old friends. And in good moments when we were catching up, they'd be like, so what's going on with you? And I'd be like, dude, let me tell you. This is what's going on with me. And I'd have these like long conversations with people about, about who Jesus was and what had happened in my life. And this went on for, I don't know, maybe six weeks. And this one night, I'm in Napa. I still remember where I was sitting. I was sitting at the bar. Uh, with a, this uh, kind of like friendly acquaintance of mine. And 
he comes over and wants to talk about God things because now everybody knows that like that what's gone on and so he sits down and starts talking and and we get like 30 minutes into the conversation and he goes do you know what people are saying about you when you're not around And I was like, not really, but I can probably project. <laughs> right? And so he goes on to tell me uh, what, what people were saying about me when I, when I wasn't around, um, which was really hurtful. Right? I mean, it's not like the stuff doesn't necessarily sting, but it was, like, it was really hurtful. And so uh, I go home, and I'm like praying about it, and I'm talking to the Lord about it. And some of these very verses start to come to my mind, like, blessed is the person who's persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, he says basically like, hey, disciples, the light came into the world. They hated the light. They wanted to stay in darkness. And so don't be surprised when you let your light shine if you get persecuted just like I did. And so I think as we talk about this stuff, I want to actually kind of shift our perspective because what I don't want this to be is, church, let's gird up. Let's go out and like, let's stop caring about the world and, and like the world's opinion to the place that makes us callous and insensitive to the people around us. Or let's like, you know, put on our protective Christian armor and like close those doors and lock them. Nancy said something to me before church that really struck me. She said, effectively, I wouldn't mind being persecuted because I'm looking for things actively in my life that I can give to God that I know are honoring to him. That is such a different perspective on persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. That sounds like refined thinking that believes that passage. That, that sounds like a mindset that's been renewed and refined to a place where she's thinking like God. And the crazy thing is, is we look at, in Acts chapter 5, we see this interesting thing where Peter started to get really bold now, and he went and he's preaching in the temple courts teaching the people and the religious leaders in the same way they did for Jesus, they pull him in and they put him in jail. He's sitting in jail and he's like singing worship songs and I don't know what you do when you're sitting in jail. Uh, singing worship songs and praying a lot and his chains break free and the door opens and he leaves and he walks out and he starts preaching in the temple again and that's where our story picks up. Then someone came and said, look, the men, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. <laughs> yeah. They think that they're in jail, and all of a sudden they're in the temple courts. At that, the captain went with his official and brought the apostles back in and started, you know, talking to the, the courts again. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. That's kind of awesome. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to question them by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching 
and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they, were, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Again, you got to remember, Jesus was just crucified not long before this, a couple months before this. They're thrown in jail the first time. Now they're saying, you know, like, they have the power, if they're filling Jerusalem with this message, to, to, do, to do similar to what they did to Jesus. And they're just filled with boldness. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intended to, intend to do. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. So what happens is, one of the men of the Sanhedrin was honored, and he makes a case for them not to be killed. So God basically puts words in this guy's mouth in order for them to not kill him. He says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men, etc. He goes on and says, if this isn't from God, it will be stamped out. It will amount to nothing. And so, therefore, in this case, I advise you, leave these people alone, let them go, etc. His speech persuades them. They call in the apostles, so Peter and his crew, and they have them flogged. So I talked about this last week, but it's worthy of saying again. Flogging is no joke. Flogging is, I think this is the way it works in this situation. So there's, there's kind of two different types. One, both involve a big leather whip. So it's like leather straps, you know, this long that they cut, and then they whip somebody on the back with it so as to split open the back. The one that Jesus experienced when they're going to the cross, they tie knots and they tie bones and stuff in there so that when they hit it, they're slicing open the skin and it's especially gruesome. This one, I think, was just the leather whips with the knots, but no bone and stuff. All right, so I mean, they got off easy, but they're getting flogged. And it was said that if you flog somebody 40 times, it kills them. And so they'd usually do it like 39 times before they were taking someone to crucifixion. And so they're getting beaten in a very aggressive, brutal way. And they give them like two words in the scriptures. It's like, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. It's like, that's it. It's like, that's it? Aren't you going to add, you know, that's kind of a big deal. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That's not going to happen. Check this out, verse 41. This is the part that I want us to just like let settle in. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I want to encourage us to get into our prayer closets, to get into our worship times, to do the business with the Lord that gets us to the place where we can say, 
that we could rejoice because we had been found worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. This whole life, this whole thing, it's about his glory. We don't have a long time down here. He's given us a mission, and he's filled us with power. And our mission isn't to be lessened or watered down by anything. He says, go boldly. If you receive persecution, receive it with joy. And I think it's good for us, given that we live in a place where there's relative affluence, to remember that harder is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's hard to remember that he is the main thing and that that main thing influences everything else going on in our life. Do I care about my own joy? Absolutely. But kind of only so that I can live passionately and strong in the world. Do I care about having finances? Yes, because I want to use them as a tool for his glory and his honor in the world. Do I want to have favor with people? Yes, but only so that my favor can give me a place of influence in speaking into the lives of the people around me. What are the other eight things that we could rattle off that you say, yes, I care about this thing, but let's just continue to make sure that the back half of that is the true number one, is the true reason. I'm super inspired by this Acts 5 passage that they rejoiced due to the, the disgrace that they got to suffer for the name of Jesus. That they were persecuted and, and hated and abused and they come out rejoicing because they knew they were doing exactly what they should be doing, following their Savior, declaring light into the world and receiving what came back as, as part of the, the discipleship moment. And so what I'd encourage us to do is let's get to the place where we move from having this be a defensive thing where it's like, oh no, like what if something happened? I just need to be, to what would it look like to have the mindset everywhere we go is like, if I follow the Lord, if I seek his kingdom and his righteousness and there's persecution that comes back the other way, that is a jewel in my crown when I stand before the king that I'll be able to give back to him as my glory as my glory. This will be the things that are my glory in life. The things that value when I get before the Lord. You know, it says, it talks about in Revelation where all the saints take off their crown and they throw it at the feet of Jesus. A crown represents glory. And so we'll have a moment where there's rightful glory, in a sense, given to us for the lives that we've lived. And in heaven, we'll be able to take that thing off as our treasure and throw it at the feet of Jesus and say, nothing is my glory except for you, the person of Jesus, and lay that glory down. But man, don't you want to have something to lay down? Don't you want to have something when 
the Lord is looking over your life to be like, man, you listened to my words. You didn't think that this life was the main thing, that this was just the small little blip on the attorney's radar, and you lived it well. You didn't get caught up in the finances and the pleasures of men and all this other stuff, but you lived it all out for me and now enter into your inheritance. Like, that is what we're living for. That is what Jesus modeled, and that is what Joseph of Arimathea modeled in this passage so well. This, hello? Oh, yeah. So this week I felt like the Lord was speaking to me. Um, he was saying that you cannot love this world and love me. And I saw a picture of a bunch of people camped out. I saw all these tents in my mind. And I felt like the, the Lord was saying, my children don't realize that they've camped out here thinking that this is their home. And then they become disappointed. But this was never meant to be the promise. And so when our disappointments in the way that things have turned out where we've camped, is inevitable. I felt like the Lord was reminding me of the scripture that we are actually all strangers and aliens here, designed, made for heaven, for eternity. And we cannot allow ourselves to get comfortable here. This is a pit stop. This is a pit stop. This is not home. This is not where we build forever. The things, it is so important. This is a tent. And we are following in various ways our fire by night, our cloud by day and our fire by night. This is not home. To the extent that we can bring heaven down while we're here, we make life better for others and to bring the name of Jesus here on earth, but this cannot be where we camp. And we cannot allow our disappointments for how things look while we're camping to determine how things will look like for eternity. And so that was what I felt like the Lord wanted to speak today. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So let's make some space to do business with the Lord. Um, can't ever talk about giving it all to Jesus and not have some stirring and some challenge go on. So we're going to make some space to, to do business with the Lord. If for you that looks like doing it from your seat, that's totally fine. What we'll provide up here is some prayer ministers. Um, if something came up for you that you'd love to just have somebody pray along with you um, over that thing, there's going to be some people up here with name badges on that would love to just pray for you, agree with God's will for your life. Um, you know, he really, he's better than we think he is. He's much better than we think he is. Even after, you know, you walk with Jesus for a very long time and see him do some pretty miraculous things, you always stand back when you see him again and go like, oh God, you're, you're even better than I thought you were. And so when you come up for prayer ministry, what, what we've tasked these guys to do is to do business with God with you and to invite that person who's better than you could ever dream and agree with his will for your life. And so if you'd like to do that, there's people who can pray for you. 
Um, but otherwise, we'll just spend some time in worship, doing business with the Lord, and I'll kick it off by leading us in with a time of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Jesus, I thank you for the perspective of the disciples in Acts chapter 5 that got imprisoned, got slandered, and got beaten for your name. And they walk out rejoicing and skipping and celebrating just because they were counted worthy, just because you gave them the opportunity to be persecuted for your namesake. For the name is the way it puts it. For the name the name above every other name, the only name that matters, the name, is what they are persecuted for. And so, Lord, as persecution comes our way, as we walk as light in this world, God, I pray that you would fill us with the grace and strength to have the same things come out of our mouth that came out of theirs, which is thank you, Jesus. Blessed are we for any persecution that we may receive, for it's your honor and it's your glory that we live for. It's your honor and it's your glory that we live for, God. And so, God, in this time, we just invite you to come and move and do your work in our hearts and in our lives and in our city and in our church and in our nation and our world. Would you move, Jesus, in this time? Amen.